Amen. Old Lester was running moonshine across state lines. One day he was drinking some of his contraband when a policeman pulled him over, saw his truck weaving, and pulled him over and said, Son, what's in that jug? Lester told him, he said, Water, sir. I'm going to church to worship Jesus. Well, the policeman grabbed the bottle. He took a whiff. He said, son, that's not water. That's white lightning. Lester shouted, well, praise the Lord. He's done it again. (laughs) And he was referring to the story that we find here in John chapter 2. On the third day, the third day after Jesus and his disciples had left John and his baptizing in the Jordan and had come north, There was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, wedding feasts in first century Israel lasted a whole week. With a daughter of my own, I've now paid for one wedding, and catering a single meal almost broke me. Imagine throwing a party that lasted seven days. Well, this particular bride and groom must have known Mary and her family. Jesus' mom was attending the wedding. And this couple made a very important decision, probably without realizing its significance. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Let me say to all married couples, here's the best thing you can do for your marriage. Invite Jesus to the wedding. Include him in your marriage from the very first start. Marriage was God's idea. And who better to help you with yours Then God made flesh. Here's a question for all couples. Have you invited Jesus to your marriage? You know, when you invite Jesus to be part of your marriage, you get a pastor who will remind you of your vows, a wedding director who will keep you in step, a counselor who will help you with your adjustments and help arbitrate disputes, a family planner who will give you wisdom, a coach that will keep you enthused, Jesus is what every couple needs. You know, it's significant that Jesus' first miracle occurred at a wedding. For every marriage needs a miracle from time to time. And over the years, Jesus has proven nothing's changed. He still likes to work miracles in marriages. And like most weddings, this was an exuberant, happy occasion. That is, until the wine ran out, verse 3, And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Hospitality was the supreme priority in the first century, and to run dry at a party was the ultimate social embarrassment. Here Mary's statement implies that she believes Jesus can do something about the problem. But in verse 4, Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now on the surface, this seems to be a stern way for Jesus to address his mother. But the term translated woman here in the Greek language isn't as crude as it might sound in English. It was more a generic word, not as degrading as broad or dame, but not as affectionate as mom or mother. It was just sort of like the term female. Jesus was making a point, though. The time had come to redefine his relationship with Mary. 
in a way, he's letting his mother know that God's eternal plan isn't going to cater to her maternal needs. Life is changing for them both. Author Mary Zoba, she writes of Jesus' treatment here of his mother Mary. She says, why at the wedding did Jesus push his mother away? Why couldn't he call her mom in front of the throng? A mother needs to know these things. But then a mother, even Jesus' mother, needs to know the Savior more. And how else could she have found her Savior without first losing him as her son? For 30 plus years, Jesus had been Mary's boy. Since Joseph died early in Jesus' life, he had taken over the carpenter shop. Jesus had probably served as the head of household. Mary had leaned on Jesus during those years. For three decades, Mary had Jesus to herself. But he ultimately belonged to God. And it was time for her to let him go. Their relationship will change now. Jesus is about to go from her son to her savior. He is about to become Mary's Lord. And you know, there comes a time for every mother when she has to let go of her child. The transition of turning loose of a child and getting back a friend is a difficult one. But it's necessary. Mom, never forget your son or daughter is a loner. They're just a loner. He or she is on loan from God, and one day God will expect you to give that child back to him. Well, verse 5 tells us, Now, his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And here is the last recorded statement of Mary in all of the scriptures. Rather than focus on or exalt herself, she points the people to Jesus. Whatever he says to you, do it. You know, Roman Catholics teach people to pray to Mary, thinking that she has some clout with Jesus. This is a false idea. If Mary appeared today, her message would be the same as that day. Whatever Jesus says to you, do it. The last thing Mary would want us to do is worship or serve or pray to her. No, she would tell us to obey Jesus. And then verse 6, now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And when the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, a molecular miracle had occurred. What went in as water came out wine. Hey, Jesus is a handy guy to have around. And the host did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the wedding sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now notice the caterer's reaction. He says usually the best wine is poured first. Later you bring out the cheap stuff. Implied is that once the crowd's a little tipsy, then they won't notice that the quality of wine is diminished. But this host is shocked that the best wine was served last. 
Now, obviously, unlike what I was taught in the Baptist church growing up, the wine that Jesus created was more than a stiff glass of Welch's. This was fermented wine. Now, it's true, first century wine didn't have the same alcohol content of wine today. But this wasn't just grape juice. What Jesus miraculously created was real wine. And if the Lord of glory supplied a party with wine, what's wrong with his followers drinking it? The answer, nothing. Just as long as you don't get drunk, just as long as you don't tempt others to do so, there's nothing wrong. The New Testament teaches us moderation, that Christians can drink alcohol as long as they are never controlled by anything but Jesus. But it's true, Jesus turned real water into real wine. And he's still busy turning water into wine today. You know, Jesus can take mundane, boring drab duties of life, water-like duties of life, and he can make them sweet and intoxicating. Has your life been infected with boredom and drabness? Once a flight attendant, she announced to the plane's passengers, for lunch today, we have a choice of chicken marengo, beef burritos, or fruit salad. But then she added, and if you don't get your first choice, don't worry, all our entrees taste very much the same. See, after a while, this is what happens in life. Everything starts to taste the same. Experiences become blah. Pleasures taste bland. Oh, it's the same old, same old. Life tastes like water at times. But Jesus can turn water into wine by fermenting our lives with the Holy Spirit. Jesus spiritually spikes the punch of everyday life. He can lift us out of the rut and turn life into an adventure. He can replace our blahs and turn them into bubbly. He restores sparkle to our lives. And recall where this miracle took place. At a wedding. Perhaps you feel stuck this morning in a boring marriage. Your holy matrimony has turned into holy monotony. It's been said, marriage is like a violin. After the music stops, the strings are still attached. Is there hope for a boring marriage? You bet there is. Jesus can spice up your marriage. See, here's what you should do. Today, this afternoon, when you go home, you and your spouse should get on your knees. You should call out to Jesus and invite him to your marriage. Then I challenge you, open your Bible and do whatever he tells you to do. Hey, you invite Jesus, you do your part, and Jesus will do a miracle in your marriage. Well, verse 11 tells us, This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He headed down to the Sea of Galilee. It was 16 and a half miles from Cana. Capernaum served as his base of operation for his ministry in Galilee. Well, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, they went there, but they didn't stay there many days, for now the Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he got to Jerusalem, he discovered that the Jewish hierarchy 
had turned their temple into a target. A worshiper could only sacrifice a priestly approved lamb. And these lambs were only available from temple-sanctioned outlets where the sacrifices were sold at exorbitant prices. See, the kickbacks went to the priest. It was all a scam. As was the temple tax. When you went to give your offering, the priest wouldn't accept Roman or Gentile coins. They had to be exchanged for temple tokens. And of course, this was done for a fee at an outrageous exchange rate. Sadly, these temple leaders were making a buck off God. And how do you think Jesus reacted to this corruption? When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned tables. You know, I used to think Jesus just sort of got caught up in the moment. You know, he reached for whatever was within within grasp. It could have been a broom or a stick. It just happened to be a whip. But that's not how it went down. Notice again the wording. He made a whip of cords. I picture Jesus eyeballing those crooked priests as he weaves that whip. He's forming a weapon. He's getting a weapon. This is a weapon. A whip's a weapon. His blood is boiling. His hands are clenching. He's getting angry. He knows he's about to go ballistic. This is going to turn ugly. You need to realize our Lord Jesus cleansed the temple in a premeditated act of aggression. So much for gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus was a manly man, willing to take matters into his own hands at times. Recall, Jesus was a carpenter by trade. He worked with his hands. He no doubt had muscles on his frame. Here he literally goes to war and whips the temple into shape. And then he says in verse 16, he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. These so-called prophets were only concerned with their monetary profits. And sadly, some churches I've been to have the same priority. Realize what made this temple racket so disgusting to Jesus was not just what was happening, but where it was happening. You see, this merchandising was going on in the court of the Gentiles. If you were a Roman or a foreigner, this was as deep into the temple as you could go. This meant that your one exposure to God was colored by greed, not godliness. I think today the media, the internet, or TV, or radio is the equivalent of the court of Gentiles. It's as far as some people look into the things of God, and it's shameful that ministries there portray God as being broke or as being greedy, as he's only interested in their money. Hey, these ministries should be whipped into shape again. In the aftermath of this cleansing, verse 17 tells us his disciples remembered that it was written, and here he quotes Psalm 69, verse 9, zeal for your house has eaten me up. The psalmist had predicted Messiah's zeal, that he would be eaten up with zeal, with a desire for sincere worship. Jesus was passionate about us being pure in heart and worshiping God in sincerity. 
And so the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now Jesus had just rinsed the temple of its hypocrisy. And so it's likely that he's still standing there in the hallways of this colossal structure. You need to know that Herod's temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was a colossal, it was a magnificent building. That Jesus would say he was going to destroy the temple and then raise it up in three days was stunning. Well, then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? The first temple was demolished by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. The second temple was rebuilt 70 years later by the Jews who had returned from Babel. In 40 B.C., King Herod came to power, and to appease the Jews, he started a massive expansion and renovation to the temple. So by the time of Jesus, construction had been going on for 46 years. Now Jesus says that the sign of his authority is to tear it all down and rebuild it in a weekend. The Jews listening to Jesus, they were just scratching their heads. Only because they didn't have the right temple. For John explains in verse 21, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. The sign that Jesus would give the Jews was his bodily death and resurrection. See, the temple was God's residence on earth. But if the Jews had been perceptive, they would have realized that God had never revealed his presence in Herod's temple. He was waiting on a new temple. Jesus is where God's presence rested on earth. In flesh and blood, not in brick and mortar. His resurrection was the ultimate sign. The disciples recalled this later. We're told in verse 22. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man for he knew what was in man. Now notice these intriguing words. Jesus didn't commit himself to them. At the time, lots of people were following Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. And Jesus had no confidence in their affections and in their loyalties. Thus, he kept the crowds at bay, at arm's distance. See, they were only after his miracles. They didn't want a Messiah. You know, there are a lot of people like that today. They only want what God can do for them. They don't really want to follow God. You know, it's one thing to say you're committed to Jesus, but the relationship isn't real until he commits himself to you. Does he trust you enough to commit himself to you? Well, in chapter 3, we tune in to the original Nick at night. Rabbi Nicodemus comes to Jesus under the cover of darkness in pursuit of more light. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus was a member of the Sanhedrin, or the Jewish Supreme Court. 
He was a VIP. Nicodemus had a reserved parking space outside the Hall of Hewn Stones where the Sanhedrin held their assemblies. This rabbi was somebody. Notice verse 10 calls him not just a teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel. People in the know yielded to Nicodemus. He was a rabbi to the rabbis. He was a scholar, a statesman. But most importantly, Nicodemus was a seeker of truth. Well, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was impressed by Jesus' miracles. Yet why the secrecy? Why this after-hours visit? Remember, Jesus had just cleansed the temple And in doing so, had declared war on the priestly establishment. He had thrown down the gauntlet, so to speak. And Nicodemus isn't quite ready to pick it up and take sides with Jesus until he has some of his questions answered. And thus this meeting. Verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him. He answered him before he ever asked the question. And said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now recall the end of chapter 2. Jesus knew what was in man. Jesus saw what was on Nicodemus' mind before he ever opened his mouth. For all Jews at the time, like Nicodemus, hated the Roman occupation. Nicodemus longed for Israel's former glory. He expected Messiah to come and bring about God's kingdom. Understand, too, Nicodemus was a Jewish scholar. He was schooled in the Old Testament. He had read the promises that God had made to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and to the Jews who had come back from Babylon. We call those promises the New Covenant. The New Covenant consisted of three chief promises. First, that they would return, the Jews would return to their land. Secondly, that they would be regenerated or that they would be revived in their hearts. And then third, once doing so, they would, God would reestablish his kingdom to Israel. Here's the new covenant. They would return logistically, they would be regenerated spiritually, and they would be restored politically. Now, in Nicodemus' mind, the first two promises of the new covenant had been fulfilled. The Jews had returned from Babylon. They had come back to their land. And second, there was a revival of sorts occurring in Judaism. For at the time, there was a sect known as the Pharisees. They consisted of 6,000 rabbis all across Israel, and they were showing a renewed zeal for the law. But here was Nicodemus' mistake. He interpreted the Pharisees' legalism as a revival, as this regeneration. Thus, in his thinking, promise three was next, a coming kingdom. And this is why Jesus, in verse 3, slows Nicodemus down. Yes, the Jews have returned, but they still lack a new heart. And Jesus challenges Nicodemus' understanding in verse 3. He says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The third part of the covenant, the kingdom, won't occur until hearts have changed. 
until you've been born again. You see, legalism can alter our conduct. But only God's Spirit can birth a new heart. Only the Holy Spirit can create in us a new nature. And to be part of God's kingdom, you have to be born again. In other words, step two of the new covenant comes before step three. To participate in God's kingdom, you first have to be regenerated or made alive spiritually. The term Jesus used, born again, at first confused Nicodemus. He thought of a natural, physical birth. Notice his response in verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I mean, he's confused. What does this born again mean? Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. To be born again is to be born of the Spirit. God's Spirit. The Holy Spirit shocks the dead spirit of a man back to life with God. It's a work of the Spirit. But what does Jesus mean by born of water? And this is where the discussion can get controversial. Some Bible teachers interpret water as the ministry of John the Baptist or repentance. In other words, you have to repent, then the Holy Spirit will spark new life. Repentance precedes regeneration. This is true, and it's certainly a possible interpretation. Others say water speaks of natural birth or a mother's amniotic fluids. In other words, to be born again spiritually, you first have to be born physically, which makes sense. But I believe there's far more to that, to it than that. Still, others believe water means God's word. You remember Ephesians 5 verse 26 speaks of the washing of water by the word. Just as it takes two parents to produce a child, it takes the word of God and the spirit of God to produce a child of God. This interpretation is also a possibility. What is not a possible meaning of the phrase born of water is baptism. And there are people who claim that baptism is essential for salvation. And those who do usually justify it with this verse. But recall the thief on the cross. He wasn't baptized. And yet he entered into God's kingdom. Baptism is significant, but it's not mandatory. That's not what's meant by born of water. I believe when Jesus used the phrase born of water, he was taking Nicodemus back to the Old Testament. And to the new covenant. For God had promised in the Old Testament that his people would have a transformation. That he would replace their hard hearts with a heart sensitive to him. Ezekiel 36 verses 25 through 27 describes the new covenant and this new birth. As the sprinkling of clean water. As the putting of a new spirit within you. These are the two idioms that Jesus uses here, water and spirit. And to a Jewish rabbi skilled in the Old Testament like Nicodemus, water and spirit were shorthand for the spiritual transformation promised under the new covenant. In essence, Jesus is telling Nicodemus to study Ezekiel. In fact, Nicodemus should have known all this. Jesus actually rebukes him. He says, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? What have you been reading, Nicodemus? 
Nicodemus wouldn't have known of Christian baptism, but he was familiar with water and spirit. It was the transformation of the new covenant. Verse 6 continues, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, it takes a work of God's spirit for a man to be born again. You can conform the flesh. You can change behavior. You can, I can give you a bunch of rules. We can put you through some conditioning. We can change some behaviors. But it doesn't change the inside of a man. You can change the outside of a person. You can change their conduct. But they still be rebellious on the inside. See, looking good isn't the same as being good. T- take a little pig. Take a little pig and dress that little pig in child's clothes. No matter, he's still an oinker. He's still just hamming it up. He's a stinker at heart. His instincts, his nature are still piggish. And likewise, you can spit and polish a sinner. You can change their conduct. But that's not changing their heart. That's not changing them on the inside. Real righteousness is always an inside job. It's a work of God's Spirit. Thus Jesus says, do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. And then in verse 8, Jesus talks more about the ways of the Holy Spirit. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Watch the flags flap at Wrigley Field. The wind gusts in off Lake Michigan. One moment it's blowing in, the pitcher's friend. The next moment it's blowing out, the hitter's helper. But you can never predict it. The wind has a mind of its own, and so does the Holy Spirit. The wind is sovereign, and so is God's Spirit. The Spirit has a will of His own. And this is why the new birth isn't following a formula It isn't just praying a prayer and then out pops, you plug in a prayer and out pops salvation. No, there's more to it than that. Spiritual life is nothing less than a supernatural miracle dispensed by God's Holy Spirit. You must be born again. The Spirit has to do a work in your heart. Verse 9 tells us, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel And do not know these things. This upstart country preacher from Galilee has just given Israel's best Bible teacher a vital lesson in the new covenant that he had overlooked. Nicodemus needs to think this through. And in the weeks to come, he will. In fact, we'll find later he becomes a believer in Jesus. In verse 11, Jesus continues to speak to Nicodemus. Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus has used the human to explain the heavenly. He's spoken figuratively about being born again, but Nicodemus had been thinking literally. He needs to be more spiritually minded, as do we. Jesus says, no one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. 
And this is the first of many verses where Jesus will say that he came down from heaven. The idea is a powerful proof text of Jesus' deity. You see, humans are not pre-existent. They don't come down from heaven. Human life begins at conception. Yet Jesus existed prior to being conceived. He was from eternity past. He came down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. He came down from heaven to be lifted up on a cross. In Numbers chapter 21, when the Israelites in the wilderness rebelled against God, they were bitten by poisonous snakes. And God gave Moses a cure. He was told to make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and erect it in the middle of the camp. So that when a person looked at that serpent, they were healed. It was the look of faith that became the antidote to the poison. And this was all symbolic. For in the Old Testament, brass spoke of judgment. The serpent was a reminder of sin and its poisonous effects. It was on the cross of Jesus that God judged sin by becoming sin for us. Now one gaze of faith at the crucified Christ is all it takes for us to be healed from the poisons of sin. And here's one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. John 3.16. You know it well, don't you? Let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If love is best measured by what a person is willing to give up on behalf of the one he loves, then there has never been a love more extreme than the Father's love for us that he would sacrifice his one and only son for us. Can you imagine? Someone suggests to appreciate John 3.16, when you come to the words world and whoever, substitute your own name. When you do it, it becomes music to your ears. Try it with your name as I try it with mine. For God so loved Sandy that he gave his only begotten son, that if Sandy believes in him, Sandy should not perish but have everlasting life. That's wonderful. And then verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus' intention was to save, not to condemn. But since there's only one way to save us, God can't do one without the other. Those who aren't saved will invariably be condemned. For he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Again, Jesus doesn't condemn. Understand, Jesus is not a prosecutor. The Bible's clear. Jesus works for the defense. And he has earned for us a pardon, but it's up to us to receive that pardon. You can reject Jesus' pardon, but if you do, don't blame him for your inevitable judgment. We condemn ourselves. Nobody goes to hell because Jesus rejected them. They reject Jesus. And this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. 
For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. You know, sin turns us into moles. It forces us underground. Sin causes us to love the darkness, lest the light expose our rebellion. See, it's not that people can't believe. It's that they won't believe. For men love darkness rather than light, Jesus said. In the dark, you can believe your lies. You can believe what's comfortable and what's convenient for you. But come out of the darkness into God's light and you're forced to deal with the truth. Jesus says in verse 21, He who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And then verse 22, after these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized. Now, later in chapter 4 and verse 2, we learn that it wasn't Jesus doing the actual baptizing. His disciples baptized in his name. But folks were baptized as his followers. Now, John also was baptizing in Enon near Salim, because there was much water there. This location was further north of the Dead Sea from where John was baptized by, where Jesus was baptized by John. Enon paralleled the hills of Samaria. In the fall, that is in the dry season, the Jordan River can diminish to a trickle. And so John the Baptist needed deeper water, so he moved his headquarters further north, upstream. And the people still found him. We're told, and they came and were baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Then there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. The term purification referred to the outward ceremonial washings that were so integral to Orthodox Judaism. They were being confused confused with John's baptism. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, which was Jesus... Behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. They're leaving you, John, and they're going to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given to him from heaven. Now here are the Jews. They try to fan the flame of envy and competition in John's heart. They point out that Jesus is moving in and taking away his disciples. And yet here's the key to combating any kind of jealousy. John realizes that all true authority and blessing comes directly from God. To be jealous of another man's ministry is to question the wisdom and plan of God himself. And then John the Baptist told them, verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John knew who he was. He knew who he wasn't. He was not the Christ. He had no visions of grandeur. He who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John realized he wasn't the groom. Jesus was the groom. We are his bride. John was content and happy just being the best man. You know, you want a best man who will stand with you and then get out of the way once it's done. And this was John. When the marriage occurred, the best man's job was finished. And thus, verse 30, 
John said, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's been said another name for a wedding ring is a one-man band. The best man's job is to support the groom, not woo the bride. He knows how to bow out, and that was John. He must, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. This should be our attitudes as well, isn't it? And notice in chapter 3 here, notice when you put it all together, notice the three musts in chapter 3. First, the must of the sinner, verse 7, you must be born again. You must be if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Verse 14, notice the must of the Savior. The Son of Man must be lifted up. For us to be saved, Jesus had to be crucified. And then verse 30, the must of the Lord's servant. He must increase. I must decrease. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all, and what he has seen and heard, that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has certified that God is true. Jesus came from above. Thus, if you're looking down, if you're wrapped up in this life and the things around you, you'll miss him. You'll miss what he has to say to you. You need to be spiritually minded. I once drove a forklift for a living. My job was to wheel pallet after pallet into this metal cold room through an eight-foot-high door, and then I would lift the pallets into this 20-foot-high shelving. One trip, I raised the forks, I stocked the pallet way up high, and then I backed up, forgetting to lower the forks. I was too busy looking down, focused on what was around me, and I will never forget it. I rammed the back of those forks right into that metal wall, almost tore the thing down. How I kept my job, I'll never know. It was horrible. But I never forgot the moral of the story. Look up, man. Look up. Whatever you do, look up. And that's what I want to say to you this morning. I hope you're looking up. What will you miss out on if you're not looking up, if you're not spiritually minded, if you're not open to the God who created you and what he has to say to you? Look up. Verse 34, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, but God does not give the spirit by measure. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 tells us that to each one of us, grace has, was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. In other words, God gives to every Christian certain spiritual gifts. We're entrusted with a measure or with a portion of the Spirit's endowment. But to Jesus, God didn't give the Spirit by measure. The Spirit was given to Jesus without measure. In other words, God didn't give to Jesus one or two spiritual gifts. Jesus received them all. He became the depot of all spiritual wisdom and power. Thus the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Realize God has put all His eggs in one basket. All God's wisdom and power was given to His Son, Jesus Christ. This is why Jesus is so important to you. 
This is why your attitude toward Jesus will determine your eternal destiny. For he says, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. It's life or death. It's favor or wrath. God has put all his eggs in one basket. He's put all his wisdom and power in his son, Jesus Christ. That's why you must believe in him. That's why you must be born again. That's why Jesus is so important. It's our relationship with him that will determine our destiny, our eternal life. I pray you'll open up your heart to Jesus and give your life to him and be born again so that you can enjoy his kingdom. Father, we thank you for your word to us.